Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast series. Uh, My goal here is to find the really interesting and exceptional individuals in their fields, interview them, ask them good questions, and bring that knowledge to you, the listener. So today I have Vinicio de Jesus Perez. He's an associate professor of medicine, uh, the pulmonary and critical care medicine at Stanford. And we're going to be talking about uh, his work. So, Vinicio, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, if you would tell me about uh, what got you interested in looking at pulmonary disease, and then you know, we'll talk about your, uh, your current work. When I was in medical school in uh, Puerto Rico, I was doing my third year, which is our clinical year. That's when we rotate through the different uh, clinical specialties. I did internal medicine, and until that time, I thought that I wanted to go into neurosurgery, but... Um, I rotated on internal medicine and I met a very, uh, a very capable and brilliant in, uh, intensivist who was also a pulmonologist. And it really impressed me, uh, his breadth of knowledge, his capacity to take care of patients at their most critical. So it changed my my position of what I wanted to do with my career. And after I finished that rotation, I focused on uh, completing um, a more electives on internal medicine, pulmonary and critical care. So when I graduated and went to the Mass General Hospital to do my categorical, I already knew that I wanted to pursue subspecialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Um, But then uh, during my time in the intensive care unit, I had my first encounter with a pulmonary hypertension patient. This was a 28-year-old woman who was uh, 30 weeks pregnant. She was rushed into the... uh, into the uh, OR at Mass General because she was on cardiogenic shock and they had to deliver the baby immediately. And this woman had a disease that I had never heard of called pulmonary arterial hypertension, which, you know, simply put is high blood pressure in the lungs, which actually impairs the capacity of the right side of the heart to deliver blood to the lungs. So you're not getting blood into the lungs to get oxygen and that blood is not making it to the rest of the body. So you can imagine what, uh, what that, uh, how catastrophic that is. So I was an intern and all of a sudden I have this patient coming into the intensive care unit uh, around 11 that night. And uh, she comes with uh, a co you know, she comes with a, a, about 10 people, uh, surrounding her with uh, lines, strips, things that I've never heard of. But, you know, 
Uh, what I can tell you, though, is that uh, what impressed me the most is how young the person was. I mean, in the intensive care unit setting, you're used to 65, 70 years old with pneumonias and whatnot. This is a 28-year-old uh, woman. And, uh, you know, it was a real, uh, it was a real roller coaster. I mean, that whole night, we, uh, we actually had to resuscitate her like four times. And uh, she kept going into these arrhythmias, her pressure kept coming down. And uh, we were trying to get this drug called epoprostenol, which was, uh, you know, very recently approved uh, a few years before this to treat this condition. It was the first drug of its kind. Uh, but um, ultimately, despite our heroic efforts, I mean, the patient uh, succumbed and the baby as well. I mean, baby was... Uh, you know, probably was affected because of all the uh, hypoxemia, poor cardiac, I don't know. But um, you can tell it really uh, caused a huge impression on me. And the first thing I did was I blamed myself, of course, because, you know, at that time in your career, you think you can save everyone. And uh, if you cannot save them, then you did something wrong. But uh, I had a great mentor at the time, Dr. Uh, Charles Hales, who uh, was the chief of the pulmonary division. He was an expert in pulmonary hypertension. And, uh, you know, through much discussion, it did inspire me to read more about this, understand the disease more. And, uh, you know, that's how I uh, how I embark on what is currently my career today as a cardiopulmonologist who specializes in in the research and clinical care of patients with pulmonary hypertension. So what is uh, pulmonary hypertension versus, you know, regular run-of-the-mill hypertension and how do the two manifest? Yeah, so the systemic hypertension, which is the run-of-the-mill hypertension, as you refer to, is a very common disorder. Um, It usually affects uh, a large portion of our population, uh, it does present, uh, you know, with high pressure with one of these uh, blood pressure cuffs during a routine evaluation, or a patient may be having chest pain, shortness of breath, and they go to their doctor, and there it is. Pressure in the cuff is elevated, and there's a plethora of treatments for this. And it's certainly one of the, one of those, as a very common disease, it has become a huge research priority and uh, it still is. Now, pulmonary hypertension is a much more rare beast. And uh, until the 60s, we really thought it was more of a boutique disease. What I mean by that is that it was so rare that people just... uh, you know, didn't pay much attention to it, except when a patient presented in extremists and they died and they took out their lungs and they saw that the blood vessels in the lung were obstructed. Uh, But then something strange happened in this, and this is actually one of the most fascinating public health stories of its time, similar to when Jon Snow made the connection with uh, you know, with uh, cholera in uh, with the uh, with uh, you know with uh, with uh, dirty water in England, it's that suddenly in the '60s there was a drug that was uh, introduced uh, called Aminorex, and this drug was marketed for weight loss, 
And it's an amphetamine, an amphetamine derivative. So, of course, just like, uh, you know, your speed, your methamphetamine, it gives you a high, takes away your appetite. So, of course, it will lead people to lose weight. But what's really interesting is that when uh, the number of pH cases uh was maybe one or two a year, all of a sudden you had 40, 60 cases of pulmonary hypertension a year after introducing this drug. So that was uh, sort of the first salvo of the modern era of pulmonary hypertension because after that epidemic, the first World Health Organization Symposium Pulmonary Hypertension took place. And this is when the uh, the field started to become uh, organized into uh, scientific priorities, clinical research. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a uh, movement that continues to this day. In 2018, we celebrated the sixth World Symposia. And now we are looking, at, we have a better understanding of what the genetics, the molecular biology, and the clinical uh, evolution of this disease entails. And just to give you an idea, we are no longer talking about uh, pulmonary hypertension as a single entity. We have come to realize that their pulmonary hypertension can be a disease on its own, or it can be a complication of other diseases like lung fibrosis, left heart failure, uh, blood clots in the lung, uh, kidney failure, uh, HIV, scleroderma. So all of a sudden the, um, the pulmonary practitioner has to take a step back and suddenly uh, start to become much more critical about what the uh, diagnostic and treatment uh, process uh, must be. Our group was one of the first to establish a pulmonary fellowship program to train uh, specialists into understanding, diagnosing, and treating patients uh, with the disease. Because at this juncture in time, the disease has uh, the, the 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 field has grown so much that it requires a more sophisticated uh, training in order to be able to take care of these patients who are quite complicated. Uh, and well, okay, um, quick, quick question here. What, so what are the, um, you know, when you're sick and you have pulmonary hypertension, what happens to you? Do you just find it hard to breathe or does your mm-hmm. heart get weakened or accelerate? Like what, what clinically happens? These patients will normally present with shortness of breath. This shortness of breath tends to be slow and progressive. For many patients, and this is a disease particularly predominant in women, tends to be younger individuals. So usually you can find uh, the median age is between 50, 60, although you can see it in individuals in their 20s or, or between 20 and 40 years of age. So these are individuals that will come to you complaining of shortness of breath. And the first impulse, of course, will be to think that they have something like asthma, for example. So they get put on bronchodilators, but they don't get better. And then they present with signs of heart failure, like 
uh, leg swelling, for example, or they're gaining weight despite not having an appetite. So then you do an echocardiogram and you find that this patient actually has right heart failure. In other words, the left side of the heart is normal, but the right side is significantly enlarged and is weakened. And that right there is a telltale sign that this patient may have pulmonary hypertension. And that all of a sudden leads you to a different route. But the clinical presentation may be maybe not that different from what you will expect from other uh, disorders like heart failure or lung, or chronic lung diseases. So uh, what do you do when someone has pulmonary hypertension? I mean, are there drugs that bring it down that, you know, and, and does it tend to come with systemic hypertension as well? Do the two interact or a coincident? It is possible that the two, um, the, uh, that the two interact, um, but um, for example, right now we think of five different types of uh, pulmonary hypertension. The one type that we are most often involved in as the primary caregivers is what we call pulmonary arterial hypertension. And this is an entity that is associated with high blood pressure on the arterial side of the pulmonary circulation. That is, the left side of the heart is normal. So this is not a problem of blood blood backing up from the heart into the lungs. This is a problem where there's a fixed obstruction within the pulmonary vessels. If you look at the tissue, you will see that the blood vessels are obstructed by what looks like a growth of cells. These cells share many, uh, many uh, molecular uh, characteristics with cancer and other malignant processes, but they're not cancer themselves. But the cell growth is very exuberant and it blocks the movement of blood from the arteries into the capillaries and then the veins. For that particular entity, which can be caused by HIV, liver disease, uh, genetic mutations, drugs and toxins, or it can be an idiopathic form unto itself, we currently have 14 FDA-approved drugs. These are all vasodilators, and they can be in the form of pills, inhale agents, but for the most aggressive forms of pulmonary hypertension, we may have to uh, use agents that are being delivered continuously through uh, um, uh, intravenous lines that go straight into the heart. And these drugs have to be there continuously. There's an interruption in the flow of these uh, medications from the pump into the heart. You can really uh, see that the patient may be experiencing a significant decompensation. So... The that's why, uh, you know, the training of physicians who are cardiopulmonary experts is so critical because these are very complex drugs. You need patients need a lot of education. Physicians need a lot of support in order to take care of these patients. So when someone has a blockage in their lung, where does it happen? Like in the larger I mean, in just in, in vessels that feed parts of the lung or, and, and can, uh, I don't know, can you do like a balloon angioplasty to open up, uh, you know, vessels that supply the lungs with, with blood or? 
how is it different from a, a blockage somewhere else in the body? That is a really good question. So um, in what we call pulmonary arterial hypertension, the disorder is in the small precapillary vessels. We normally say that these are the vessels that are 50 microns in size or less. Um, so these are the resistance vessels. This is where with blood before the blood enters the capillary, which is where oxygen exchange takes place, right there, there's a roadblock. And that's what I was describing to you, that if you look under the microscope, you see a, a growth of cells that encroaches on the lumen and prevents forward flow. Uh, this is not amenable to angioplasty because none of the catheters we currently have available can go that far into the pulmonary circulation. However, to address your question about angioplasty, there is a form of pulmonary hypertension called chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And this, in this form, the cause is actually clots that obstruct the blood vessels. And these clots are stuck on the wall of the blood vessels. And in many cases, you can actually reach them by doing angioplasty, but in other cases, it is necessary to actually do an open heart uh, surgery and manually remove the clots. It sounds invasive and complicated, but the good news, the payout is that you can potentially cure that patient and their pulmonary pressures may normalize once you remove these clots from the circulation. Yeah. So... um. How many people a year does uh, pulmonary hypertension affect, and you know what's the typical outcome? Do they do they pass, or are they able to clear it somehow? So this is considered so pulmonary arterial hypertension is a is a rare uh, entity. Pulmonary hypertension as a complication of left heart disease as a complication of lung fibrosis or emphysema or uh, thromboembolic is more common. So uh, many clinicians who are not uh, as specialized like myself in this field will encounter pulmonary hypertension in those forms. But uh, when it comes to uh, you know, pulmonary arterial hypertension, like the idiopathics, uh, drug-induced or hereditary forms, they tend to be much rare, 12 to 15 cases uh, per, you know, per million, uh, for example. Uh, now that sounds like, you know, that explains to you why many, many clinicians are not uh, aware of the entity and why it's so hard to make a diagnosis when somebody presents to you with this. But, uh, you know, what we've come to realize now that we have these large registries capturing uh, patients and following them prospectively is that, you know, that number is probably higher than what's being estimated. So, um, you know, I think uh, in the last uh, 10 years, we've seen more awareness and we're seeing more referrals to our clinic at an earlier stage. So I think uh, the, the word is out that this is an entity that, you know, primary care practitioners, pulmonologists, cardiologists 
are on the lookout for, particularly when a young patient comes to the clinic and, you know, they present with these cardinal symptoms. So in addition to the pulmonary hypertension, it's rare, but, you know, thankfully, what, what other conditions, pulmonary conditions are you studying that are prevalent that need addressing? So um, in my clinic, for example, many patients that come to be evaluated suffer from connective tissue diseases like scleroderma. Um, scleroderma is an autoimmune condition that is associated with multi, uh, multi-organ um, uh, manifestations such as uh, kidney fibrosis, lung fibrosis, and pulmonary hypertension. In this particular uh, case, the most common manifestation of scleroderma is actually lung fibrosis. And then pulmonary hypertension comes at a strong second. So it is not unusual to see a patient come to me with a diagnosing of lung fibrosis and pulmonary hypertension. We also see quite a few patients who actually have emphysema or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and pulmonary hypertension is a complication of these diseases. We also see patients with sleep apnea, which is a very common sleep condition, uh, also present with pulmonary hypertension because in that case, the patients with sleep apnea, they experience chronic bouts of hypoxia when they sleep. And hypoxia is known to be a driver of of small vessel thickening and obstruction. The good news is that in those cases, if you institute uh, CPAP or you know sleep uh, sleep therapy, you can potentially improve and even reverse that disease. So you know it it, it is a very complex uh, palette, <laughs> if you will, of conditions, and uh, you have to be prepared not only to treat the pulmonary hypertension, but also to make a decision uh, as to whether the patient may benefit or not from pulmonary hypertension uh, therapies. In other words, uh, like the 14 drugs that we currently have approved for pulmonary arterial hypertension are not indicated to treat pulmonary hypertension in patients with lung fibrosis or emphysema or OSA. In fact, it can actually lead to worse outcomes. So one of the challenges as a, uh, as a, as a cardiopulmonologist is to decide which patient uh, will benefit from these drugs. Other, um, I mean, what, what's coming now? What's, what's, I guess, again, pulmonary hypertension is serious, but, but rare. Does it need this whole suite of drugs to really treat it? And even when the drugs are applied, does it work? Does the hypertension go down? Um, you know, is there a narrow window on the amount of hypertension you can have before you just, I mean, before you die or like how serious is the condition? How acute is it? If you don't treat pulmonary uh, arterial hypertension, your median survival is less than uh, three years, which, I mean, if you think about it for a, a 30-year-old woman in childbearing age, it can be catastrophic, right? Um, the good news is that uh these days, with the currently available therapies, we have significantly improved survival. Um, 
So right now, the one-year survival is 90%, three-year survival rate is 70%. Uh, but what really hasn't changed is the fact that the condition remains progressive. So even with our current, uh, our current armamentarium, we are not really uh, changing the course. We're really buying time for these patients. I mean, a patient that once upon a time, the only option they had to stay alive was a lung transplant, nowadays can be kept, uh, can be kept in good health and improve his, his or her functional capacity by being on these medications. So it can really improve the quality of life of patients. It can give these patients back a lot of their capacity to go back to work, to be able to enjoy activities of daily living. But um, it's on a timer. So the current therapies we have, they all work by uh, opening up the blood vessels in the lung. And uh, their job mostly is to open up healthy vessels so that the blood can go into these healthy vessels. So the pressures go down, the heart has less of a, of a hard time pushing blood into the lungs to get oxygenated. But what we think is going on is that those healthy vessels begin to deteriorate. The same cell growth that we see in the affected vessels takes, uh, takes a foothold. So as you start to lose that uh, bed of healthy vessels, the medications stop having the same, uh, the same uh, effect. So then you have to add more medications until eventually you run out of these medications. So what the field is focused right now is, okay, we know how to open up healthy vessels, but what we don't have right now is a way to really unplug, if you will, the vessels that are afflicted with, this, uh, with these lesions. So if we could potentially do that, then we have a chance of really uh, putting, a, putting a, a pause on the disease. So there is a, there's been an explosion over the last 20 years of uh, strong genetic and molecular uh, data that has really led us to really understand what is behind this abnormal cell behavior in the lungs of uh, patients. So there's a a huge uh, list right now of uh, um, preclinical and clinical studies that are testing some of the, these new agents, which uh, we believe is going to be uh, a major milestone in how we currently treat patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Where, could, where can people find the resources in case they suspect that this is what's going on with them or they've been told they have this problem? What's your recommendation? So one thing I would like to tell, um, tell the audience is that, you know, uh, the first thing the patients will do is they will go into Google and there's a lot of misinformation out there. Patients will get very anxious and this is a real life-threatening disease. There's no way around it. Uh, so I always re recommend to patients to check out the Pulmonary Hypertension Association website. This is the world's largest 
Patient Advocacy Association out there. Their website is curated with uh, information about the disease, about drugs, about clinical trials, and it also has online classes uh, for physicians and practitioners uh, regarding different aspects of the uh, of the condition, from the treatment, the diagnosis, as well as lung transplant selection. Uh, this will be the place where I will send both clinicians and uh, patients uh, to look into that. There's also another organization called PH Aware that works through podcasts as well as webinars, also uh, curated by physicians and uh, caregivers of patients with pulmonary uh, hypertension. These are worldwide. They, uh, they provide, uh, they're a trustworthy source of information. And that's where I will, uh, I will uh, point out uh, caregivers, patients, and physician colleagues who want to learn more about the condition. Well, Vinicio, there's one more resource that you wanted to mention. I want to make sure we capture it. What is it? I would like to also point out that our um, our clinic at Stanford University has a website. This is the uh, the uh, Wall Center uh, for Pulmonary Hypertension. Uh, our uh, our group has uh, established a website that provides information uh, and uh, links to uh, websites. Uh, that uh, talk about pulmonary hypertension. We also provide information about ongoing clinical trials that we are currently uh, conducting. And it also includes uh, uh, videos that include our faculty, such as myself and my colleagues, providing information about different aspects of uh, the disease. So for patients and practitioners who want to have another resource, I suggest they check out our website at Stanford Wall Center. Okay, very good. Well, Benicio, thank you for coming on the podcast, and I really appreciate your uh, insight. I didn't didn't really know much about it at all, so it's good for listeners to know this. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.